I'm Scott. I'm Bill. And, and we're, we're the, the Trade, Trade Guys. Guys. You're listening to The Trade Guys, a podcast produced by CSIS where we talk about trade in terms that everyone can understand. I'm H. Andrew Schwartz, and I'm here with Scott Miller and Bill Reinch, the CSIS Trade Guys. Coming up next on this action-packed episode of The Trade Guys, we'll talk about data flows, Chinese cranes, and Chinese cars, all on this next episode of The Trade Guys. Trade guys, I am glad to be back with you back in the mix after last week when you had a special guest and anybody hasn't heard that podcast, they should listen. Agree, Scott? Yes. It was a terrific discussion of fish subsidies and uh, all things WTO. So <laughs> we're delighted to have have a guest who was uh, at such de- deep knowledge. Who was the guest again? I can't remember. Christine McDaniel. Yes. Excellent. Trade economist now with the Mercatus. Mercatus, exactly. Very good. And I think uh, for our listeners, probably next week, we will break down the ministerial. Uh, at the moment that we're doing this right now, it's um, early morning in, uh, in Abu Dhabi, and they've extended the deadline one more day. So instead of ending on the Thursday, the 29th, it's going to ostensibly end on March 1st. They're in the crash and burn stage right now, which always happens. It's this is the, it's always darkest before the dawn kind of thing. Everybody is angry at each other. Everybody is blocking everything else to get even for the things that they can't get. The tone has been depressing, but there's a history here of pulling something out at the last minute. So stay tuned. And next week we will probably uh, do a uh, post mortem on. I, mean, I hope not an autopsy. Well, you know, I've I've been re I've been rewatching Peaky Blinders, and it sounds exactly like Peaky Blinders. <laughs> I have I confess I never watched it. Oh, have I missed something? Yes, you have. Dial it up on Netflix immediately. Maybe one of the greatest shows ever. Well, it is quite entertaining. You'd like it. Okay. Well, you you convinced me. I'll- there are loads of trade implications. The Shelby family of Birmingham. England are in the export import business. Oh, I thought it was Irish. It's not Irish. It's English. Well, there's some Irish components to it, but they are from Birmingham. Oh, all right. So you got to get into it. I will have to take a look. But meanwhile, we've got news to talk about. Now that the long awaited executive order on data flows is here, Bill, what does this all mean? Well, in the short run, it doesn't mean a whole lot because they're doing they're rolling it out like they rolled out the outbound investment review structure last August there with that is with a proposal and not, not really a proposal uh, uh, an indication of what they intend to do with a whole bunch of questions and a lengthy comment period so uh, it's they want to set up a, a mechanism that's going to uh, impose some restrictions on the Outflow of bulk data, which means data brokerage firms, but not entirely, going to countries of concern, which are the usual suspects, primarily China, but also Russia, Iran, North Korea, Cuba, and Venezuela, and going to, you know, entities in those countries or entities that are employees or contractors of companies that are in those uh, countries. They're intending to focus on 
data brokerage transactions and genomic data transactions primarily as things that will be prohibited going to those countries. They seem to be trying to avoid a licensing regime and seem to be trying to do it by saying, all right, these things you can't do and these things you can do. These are things like financial services data and payment processing information, things that you need for routine business are exempt. But there is this category in the middle of, of things that are going to be restricted. And uh, that is going to lead then to the question of who's going to decide all that and how it's going to actually operate. It's a bit unusual because they've given this to the Justice Department and the Department of Home, Homeland Security, not to BIS, which is the organization that usually controls exports, and that's what this is, and also has the expertise for a licensing system. It's also a little bit unusual because their statutory authority is the International Emergency Economic Powers Act, IEPA, and not the Export Control Reform Act. IEPA is broader than ECRA, but it does require the president to declare an international economic emergency. And the idea, at least in theory, is it's an emergency. And it lasts for six months, although it can be renewed indefinitely every six months. The bar for doing that has gotten a lot lower over the past 20 years. But it is, I think, unusual to use that as authority for a program that appears to be designed to be permanent. I think companies are going to be most concerned about about definitional issues, uh, what's covered, what is not, and process issues. What do they have to do to be able to export? What's going to be permitted and what isn't? And I think the reason this is coming out as an advanced notice of proposed rulemaking is to give people a chance to submit all their questions and say, you haven't clarified this, you haven't clarified that, tell us what the story is. And I think if you talk to anybody who works for a company, particularly in the fintech business, you can get a boatload of of examples of things that are going to be in a relatively large gray area that the administration has, has carved out. As I said, they don't intend to do a licensing regime, although they're saying that they may end up doing that. But there has to be some mechanism, you know, for companies to know with some certainty what they can export and what they cannot. And the government's going to sell a lot of that by saying, here are things you can't and here are things you can. But there's, I think, going to be a fairly large uh, category in the middle that's going to require companies to come in and ask the Justice Department whether a specific transaction is acceptable. Uh, That means creation of a new bureaucracy within the Justice Department which I don't think has a lot of experience doing licensing kinds of things. Well, that's what I, that's what I was going to ask you. What are your thoughts about DOJ taking the lead on this, and how is it going to coexist with other offices such as OFAC, you know, CFIUS, etc.? Uh, well, uh, according to the, the the notice, they intend to collaborate and work closely with all of them. Of course, they always say that. Yeah, I was going to say that's what they all say. We'll see, I guess, is, is, the, is the short answer. I can't think offhand of a licensing program that the Justice Department maintains. Commerce does that. Treasury does that. State does that. But I don't think justice does it. And it's not simple. I mean, it, it's bureaucratically complicated. You have to create a lot of procedures. People are going to come in and say, can I do this? Can I not do that? And you have to have a process for answering that question. And if it's going to be a consultative process, that means you've got to have an interagency working group that deals with it. And it takes time to set all that up, all that up. Fortunately, nothing's going to happen anytime soon because none of this gets set up 
uh, in the advance notice of proposed rulemaking. It all gets hypothesized and companies are going to look at it and ex- talk about what problems it's going to cause for them. I think it's also going to set up actually the same problem that BIS has now, which is a big enforcement problem. And the most obvious case is uh, use of, of third parties to get around the rules. So U.S. company A sells data to foreign company B, which is not in China and not in the country of concern. But then company B resells the data to company C, which is in China. That's hard to prevent, and it's hard to claw back. And you can claim that you have authority to control that. I think you do under ECRA. I'm not sure that IEPA goes that far. But even if you claim you can control it, once it's done, it's very hard to get undone. And it's a real enforcement challenge. So I think they've, uh, you know, it, it's clearly an issue, you know, and they're clearly worried about uh, the use of uh the you know sale of mass amounts of data from other things, surveillance and AI purposes, and using it as a means to pressure Americans on various things or to get give them propaganda. But I think there's just a boatload of questions that are going to have to be solved. That uh, is going to it's going to take a long time to get this off the ground. Sounds like it. Well, let's move on to like one of my absolute favorite subjects. This is Chinese made cranes. Guys, what national security risks are posed by Chinese-made ship-to-shore cranes, and how is the administration dealing with it? This is a concern that's been raised by some people at the I guess, Port of Long Beach and, and Los Angeles uh, about the control systems in the cranes, which are made in China, as are a lot of things. But these are the, the big gantry cranes that unload container ships. So they're saying the cranes are spying on us, essentially. That's the assertion. <laughs> yeah. It's one of the assertions. The other one is the other one is that the Chinese can control the cranes remotely and uh, take them down, put them out of commission if they want to. Yes, uh, and I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but it's not just the cranes and it's not just Chinese equipment. I mean, the direction of mechanized equipment, uh, particularly in their control systems, is higher and higher levels of system integration. It's called the Internet of Things and control uh, of the systems using information and communication technology. So what do I mean by that? Well, every mechanized device has power and has control. So think of if you have a rototiller, it's got an engine on it, and it's got a way to steer it. That's power and control. Control systems have gotten more and more sophisticated. Now, there is technological use on the power side as well. It's why your cars start so easily in all kinds of weather is because they use electronic intelligence gathering or electronic systems to make it for a smooth start when the engine's cold and when the outdoor air is cold. It didn't used to happen, but it's much better running now. That's the power of technology. But those control systems, the car, the way the vehicles are controlled, but the way power equipment is controlled is more and more subject to proprietary technology that was developed by the manufacturer. They have their own control systems. They have their own implements and equipment to manage those systems. They are all systems that uh, require special special tools and uh, systems to uh, to manage. But it's the way of the world. It's the way your car is. In fact, there's been this long fight about farm tractors. Or recent, a recent settlement between John Deere, a leading farm tractor manufacturer, and the American Farm Bureau Federation 
about what was so-called a right to uh, repair. Now, think about this 50 years ago. Uh, when I was on the Ceuta tractor back uh, in the summers of, the, let's call it the Nixon administration, the tractor I used most often was a Ford 8N. The Ford 8N was a beautiful machine, first produced in just post-World War II, I think 1947 or 48. Sold, Ford sold a half million 8N tractors. One of its selling points was its beautiful simplicity, that it was so simple that when it broke down, a farmer with hand tools could repair it in the field and get it back running. You didn't need a service call. And I tell you, that tractor was a, was a miracle from that standpoint. And this was on your family farm, Scott, Yes, right. right. And, and so this is the, the simplicity was a virtue and, and the simplicity of repairing and getting back in service without calling a faraway location for a service technician. Now, tractors have advanced, you know, a light year since then. And the level of telemetry and system control on a modern tractor is phenomenal, but it's created this very problem of who controls the software and the machinery. And John Deere developed it, so they say they control it, but they've settled with the Farm Bureau to allow farmers to repair their own tractors. But that's just an example. Yes, these cranes are made in China. Yes, Chinese companies have developed similar control systems. They have over-the-air updates, just like your Apple CarPlay does, just like your, your iPhone does. So this is the way machines are today. And I don't know what to do about it other than tell people to not panic. Well, well so the, the Chinese foreign ministry is calling out the Biden administration for unfairly targeting Chinese products and saying that they're overstretching the concept of national security. Bill, is that a fair point or is, you know, is the administration justified? I think on this one, it's, it's kind of a fair point. I mean, we'll see. But I, I we were saying before we started uh, – recording this, I think the theme for this week's uh, episode is paranoia and it gives me a chance to remind everybody of Buffalo Springfield. Paranoia yeah. strikes deep. For starts, what it's worth. It starts when you're always afraid. And this is an example of that. It, it takes you into what I've, I've been calling sort of the world of could. Could this happen? Yes. Could the Chinese use cranes to spy on us? Well, they don't spy on us. What the cranes would do would be gather data about containers uh, that are being loaded or off, unloaded or offloaded, where they're going, where they're coming from. I mean, I'm not sure how useful the data is, but could they be remotely controlled? Yes. Is that likely or is it likely to be a national security issue? No. But the reason my side of this, the don't give in the paranoia side, always loses the argument is the possibility of that is not zero. The possibility of that is 0.001%, but it's not zero. And I can't say that's impossible. I can't say that will not happen or cannot happen. I can say that it's very unlikely to happen. And of all the things that we should be worried about, this is probably number 84 on the list. But there it is. You know, I'm going to lose the argument because it could, it could happen. So we're going to spend, I think, what is it, $20 billion out of the Infrastructure Act to uh, basically rip and replace and bring in new cranes, which incidentally are going to be made by Mitsui. You know, so they're not exactly American cranes, although I think they're good. the plant is going to be in the United States. We're going to spend a lot of money. Is it well spent? I don't know. I mean, the data thing is, I think the data issue is a much bigger worry. And I'm, I think the paranoia there is much more justified than it is here. Because this has the hallmark of cash for clunkers. <laughs> the real problem with cash for clunkers, 
And this is a problem that, that people in politics ought to think about, is you're destroying perfectly useful, economically beneficial items. Okay. The problem with cash for clumpers was not giving people checks to go buy cars because the car business had suddenly softened. It was destroying the used car, the clunker that they traded in. That destruction was an act of economic vandalism, much as taking these cranes um, operations down and destroying a perfectly useful piece of equipment and replacing it with something else. I mean, this is how economies become less productive. It's, it's a crazy thing to do. And it's one of the reasons that, you know, the, the command economics is, uh, policies and uh, top-down management uh, has such a bad reputation is it really is horribly inefficient, ultimately gets you slow growth, gets you inflation, gets you all the things you don't want. So I just I just think people ought to relax. Every machine has, a, has computer controls on the these days. You know, your car knows when you stop at a liquor store. Go be worried about that. I, I hope it doesn't. Well, no, of course it does. Your car has a GPS system. Yeah. The GPS system knows where the liquor stores are. It knows when you start and stop the car, what time of day. It knows exactly where you're located. How if my, sons are, if my sons are listening to this podcast, they're saying, Dad, definitely the car knows when you're stopping at the liquor store. <laughs> <laughs> but not only does it know it, it's telling somebody else. That's right. And that's the that's the concern about it. Well, just for the record, I don't care who knows the the once every couple of months I actually stop at the liquor store. But it sounds to me, if we can continue with the Buffalo Springfield theme here, Bill, that the administration is saying back to China, stop. Hey, what's that sound? It sounds like a lot of Chinese whining. Um. Well, there's there's some of that. there is some of that, of yeah. course. And, I mean, they complain about everything we do, but. Then again, we complain about everything they do. So it's sort of a, there's a lot of, of uh, mud being slung back and forth. I think in this particular case, uh, I think they have a slightly stronger argument than in some other cases. Okay. Well, let's talk about another one of their cases. What steps did a recent report by the Alliance for American Manufacturing recommend to counter the risk of future dominance by Chinese car makers? That's a big issue. Yeah, it, well, it, it's a big issue. It, it, like a lot of these things, it's it's a theoretical issue. We we there are not a lot of Chinese car imports into the United States. No, and there aren't going to be anytime soon because, uh, thanks to uh, former President Trump, there was a twenty seven and a half percent tariff on on Chinese cars. But the the the, the group that made that proposal was looking ahead. And they're looking at what's happening in Europe because there is going to be a problem in Europe. They're going to get swamped with these things. Uh, their tariff is 10%. Uh, the Europeans are gearing up. But I think the big issue there, and, and the, the issue that we'll have to address here, is not just the size of the tariff. The issue is whether we have a competitive product or not. The Europeans don't, at least not right now, have a competitive domestically manufactured EV. So the Chinese are moving onto a playing field where the other team isn't there, or they haven't, they haven't posted yet. So the real solution, I think, for the United States is to make sure that we, if you want to compete in this sector, which is another question, but if you want to compete in this sector, that make sure we come up with a competitive product. We have more time than the EU to do that because the, the existing tariff is going to keep them out for a while. What people are concerned about and what this group is concerned about is carom shot, if you will, where they're not going to ship directly from China to the United States. They're going to set up assembly plants in Mexico and export from Mexico to the U.S. 
And there's already planning going on on the part of Chinese company, auto companies to do that. I think in the short run, what happens is they try to take over the, as much of the Mexican market as they can, which is not a small market. And so we'll see how that goes. But it's in, I'm sure they have their eyes on the U.S. I think some of the concern is maybe exaggerated in the sense that there's this feeling that, well, they're going to build cars in Mexico and then immediately all the Chinese Mexican cars are going to be eligible for EV tax credits, for example, in the Inflation Reduction Act, or they're going to qualify for zero tariffs under USMCA. That is, uh, I think, very, very uncertain at this point. To qualify for the tax credit, you're going to have to have a supply chain that doesn't have contain any Chinese parts or components or any Chinese minerals. And I don't think a Chinese company located in Mexico is going to, is going to do that. So I don't think they're going to ever going to be able to qualify for the IRA tax credits. They may be able to avoid the 27.5% tariff and just deal with the tariff of the, the MFN tariff of 2.5%. Or they, you know, depending on the amount of Mexican content, they may even be able to qualify for zero tariff. And that would be enough to make them very competitive. You know, they don't need the tax credit to be competitive. So yeah, we should be worried. But, you know, the answer that's being proposed is your classic protectionist answer. You know, they're going to bury us. So let's keep them out of the country. Yeah. Look, this is a this is actually a much deeper problem. Uh, it's a deeper problem in, in Europe and the United States because in both Europe and the United States, in the automotive sector, the government stands between the auto manufacturer and the auto buyer. And basically, over the years, 50 years or so of, of regulatory policy in both safety and fuel economy or, or emissions, the government winds up working with the auto manufacturers, telling the auto manufacturers what to build and essentially limiting what the consumer can buy. Here's the story of today's U.S. Now, the, the proponents of this are the Detroit Three, as we would call them. Now, today in the U.S. auto market, there's a problem, which is you don't have the kinds of products that built the industry in the first place. Simple, reliable, efficient vehicles. The Ford Model T, the Volkswagen Beetle, the Austin Mini, the Toyota Corolla, the Toyota Hilux pickup truck. Those vehicles aren't sold in the United States anymore, or a vehicle like that. So what you have is a situation, here are the facts that, that the dealers will tell you. First, the median auto transaction in the United States, $47,000. That's that's the median. And that's up $10,000 from before COVID. Because interest rates have also gone up, the payments are up a third versus 2019. So just pre-COVID. Now, there are half of buyers, the median buyer is looking for a car at $30,000 or less. Only 13% of vehicles sold in America have a sticker under $30,000. So there's a mismatch. What's missing are low-cost, efficient cars, much like the Volkswagen Beetle and the Model T and the, the original Toyota Corolla. Those cars are what buyers want, and they're not for sale by the Detroit 3. Now, you can try to keep them out, but that's the state of the auto market. And uh, in, in many ways, this is a problem that the automakers have worked with the government to create. You know, it's you know, going all the way back the Chrysler bailout in the, the, the Carter administration, which to Chrysler's credit, they paid the money back. Uh, but we had similar bailouts and, and bankruptcies, structured bankruptcies in 2009. And now in 2018, when they were rewriting these uh, corporate average fuel economy rules, the Trump administration, which was on a deregulatory agenda anyway, said, don't you want to make these things a little more reasonable? And the automakers all said, 
No, we love our captors. You know, we we love the way that the government makes us do things. And they refuse to work with the administration who wanted to reduce the regulation. So, guys, I have no sympathy for you because you you embrace these regulations. There's an obvious uh, hole in the market. I wouldn't be surprised at all if Chinese-made cars will fill it sooner rather than later. But that's the way markets work. And things are, are, are tough right at the moment because of high prices, high interest rates. Consumers are not happy. How do trucks figure into that equation? I think the market is shifting. Uh, I don't understand why, but the market seems to be shifting in the direction of trucks and away from Call, call them light vehicles. Uh, you know, cars and trucks because SUVs are probably the most popular element. But it's the same story. Cars these days are much more expensive. They're more expensive to buy, more expensive to insure, more expensive. The money to borrow, uh, uh, take a lot of the loan on a new car, it costs more. Um, and the depreciation is higher, particularly electric vehicles, which seem to depreciate much more rapidly because of the battery replacement life cycles. So it's a very difficult market. There's nothing at the lower end. And that's what the BYD, which is the leading Chinese brand, sees. And what every manufacturer is going to see, and if there's a way to fill it, they will. Well, so do you really think, though, that even if the cost is so much cheaper, Americans are going to feel comfortable driving Chinese-made automobiles? Oh, I remember uh, thinking that the original Toyota Corolla that showed up here about 1972 was a ridiculous uh, vehicle. My brother had one. I thought it was laughable. It's the leading car in the world today. Yeah. And and known for its legendary reliability, so it, things things change very fast. It takes time, but I, I think the other factor that we probably have to think about is, is um, at that time, I think uh, the consumer was persuaded that the Japanese car was uh, basically better quality and better price than the American alternative in the eighties. Right now, there's such an unfavorable view of China in public opinion. I'm not sure they're going to be as enthusiastic to buy a Chinese car. Yes, yeah. that's what I'm saying. Japanese car. It, it's possible. Uh, in Mexico, they interviewed Mexican consumers who say, hey, my iPhone's made in China. That's good enough for me. Who cares if my car's made there? Not, that's a Mexican opinion, not, not an American one. So, but American, Americans mm-hmm. care about the brand of their cars, right? I mean, it, it's, it's, it's part of our identity. I mean, I think about- Everybody does worldwide. It's a, it's a badge product. There's no question. Yeah, but I mean, in America, like, you know, cities like Los Angeles, where people, it's a driving city, you know, people really love their cars. I'm thinking North Carolina, where cars are, you know, worshipped, you know, do people, I just, the question I have is, is would people feel comfortable with that Chinese label on their, on their car that they're driving around? Bill, I think Bill's right. It's going to take time. Yeah. But for me, this void in the market of affordable, efficient, simple vehicles is a is a problem that won't be remedied by tariffs or any other trade measure. The consumers are are speaking up. So I hear you. Uh, I can can't really just say enough. I may be the only one among us that's actually driven a Model T. Uh, <laughs> I have. Okay, well two of them. Not a great ride in my opinion. All right, so both of you guys. Yes, we're both old. Both old, both vintage, both classics. Yes. But there, there were reasons that the Ford Model T was successful in its day. And a lot of it had to do with simplicity, being able to navigate, you know, muddy, wet-filled roads. Yeah. Uh, it was a unique vehicle. No doubt. You can say that about it. I wouldn't want to do it again. 
I want to, just for the record, I didn't drive it when it was new. Okay. <laughs> Nor did I. <laughs> didn't think so. But I've been a car guy longer than I've been a trade guy. So That's right. Well, Scott is a real expert on these things. I know. I know. We love our cars in America. I mean, are you kidding me? Yes. In, in a way, this this is a, I think this is a healthy debate for us to have in the country about, you know, what kind of car industry we want to have. And it's going to be a little bit different because we've seen the movie before. We've seen this in with Japan in the 80s. So you can see what's what's coming and then you have to make a decision about how you want it, how you want to handle it. There were similar proposals to deal with Japanese imports in the 80s. Tariffs. Mm-hmm. I mean, the Congressman Gephardt, Missouri, would, was uh, famous for that proposal, which kicked around for a long time, but ultimately was never enacted. So we may be having the, we may be having the debate again. The new element yeah. that uh, relates to the last two topics we've taken up is there's also a national security element here. That is that you know your car not only knows where you go to, when you go to the liquor store, uh, it knows everywhere you go. Uh, and if you charge your phone in it, you know, your phone data gets downloaded to your car, which in turn might get uploaded to whoever is, you know, receiving your car's data. And that raises the question of uh, if the cars are Chinese, where is the data going? And do we care about that? So paranoia, again, is that a national security issue? That's a debate that people don't seem to want to have. I think you can very easily make the case that if we if we lose our automobile industry, it would be an economic disaster, and it would be a workforce disaster, no question about it, for the United States. Would it be a national security disaster? I'm not sure that uh, the answer to that is quite so clear. Well, one thing I know is American morale is good when our cars are selling, when, our, when the cars we make are really good. I mean, you think about the auto strike. I mean, the whole deal was auto workers are like, these companies are making a lot of money because we build really great vehicles and people love them. I mean, what's better than like a Ford Explorer or a Jeep Wrangler? Or, you know, I mean, these are great cars. Definitely. The industry has, has improved leaps and bounds, but it's gone through its phases. And there are sometimes you hit a phase like the Malaise era, like five mile an hour bumpers and, and, and all the, uh, the choked down uh, fuel economy requirements. It was a tough time. Nobody... Nobody collects cars from the mid-60s. Almost no one collects from the 70s or 80s. So, But you'll collect modern cars for the same reason that we love the 60s cars. I saw a Volkswagen Cabriolet convertible from the 80s the other day. It was the same car that one of my girlfriends used to drive. Boy, did that one just jump out off the road. Really cool-looking car. Yep. I always get depressed in these conversations when we have a place on, on the Eastern Shore and the community there usually puts on, I think they stopped during COVID, but often they put on a, an antique car show Yeah, where people bring in their antique cars and you go and look at them and, you know, talk to the, the owners. And I've been really depressed the last several times because the antique cars are the ones that I used to drive, you know, <laughs> that I grew up with, you know. You got to enter yourself, Bill, as an antique. <laughs> I could just get a lawn chair and sit out there with the rest of them, yes. I, I, I could see the, you sitting out there in a lawn chair. A, a, a beautiful sight, indeed. Guys, great discussion as always. We'll be back next week. Same trade time, same trade channel. Thanks. Thank you. To our listeners, if you have a question for the trade guys, 
write us at tradeguys at csis.org. That's tradeguys at csis.org. We'll read some of your emails and have the trade guys react to it. You've been listening to The Trade Guys, a CSIS podcast.